Nicholas Hedberg is the Chief Pharmacist of the Swedish Pharmaceutical Benefits Agency, TLV, and is the Chair of the UNETA Executive Board of Directors. He is seen as one of Europe's young visionaries, working to improve processes and develop new approaches to evaluating medicines in the member states, as well as improve access for patients. Nicholas, it is great to see you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure. We're here at the HTAI conference in a very warm Cologne, which is quite <laughs> not, not, not yeah. normal these days. <laughs> very warm indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but it's, it's been a lovely conference, though. Yeah, it's good to see you. So you've just been recently elected chair of UNETA. How's it going so far? Well, the first, it, it was a great honor, and uh, I really appreciate that it was late spring last year. Uh, but uh, in UNETA, a lot of the discussions are now about speeding up production of joint assessments, especially, and also, of course, about the political process with the proposal from the European Commission from late January last year as well on a future and permanent model of HDA cooperation in Europe. So that is what takes up a lot of our thoughts and minds, even though we are not as actively working with it, because it's, as I said, that is on the political level and UNETA is a technical uh, working network. What do you think is the biggest challenge to the HTAs right now? What's the biggest sticking block with getting this done? Apart from the Political challenges, which, which are with, certainly large. Yeah, uh, I think the theme of this Congress, the HTAI in, in Cologne, catches uh, a lot of our challenges. Uh, HTA after 2020, we see a number of technologies developing and coming now to to the market and to patients, like CAR T cells, like advanced therapies, like histology independent indication therapies, that will challenge the way we are doing HDA and the way we have done HDA. And part of the problem is a lot of these are for small indications. And so you're getting early evidence packages with extrapolation that makes it really difficult to make a, a valuable decision or the correct decision. From a methodological standpoint, how are you going to work around that? I guess that is that is what the discussion is, <laughs> is, is quite a lot uh, uh, around now. Uh, I wasn't in a session where someone try to do a poll question even though the poll system at that time didn't work. Do you think this is a technical issue? The, the fact why we're facing these problems is and see these this kind of new studies without comparable arm for example. Is this a feasibility problem, a technical problem, a ethical problem, not a problem at all or financial problem so it, it could be done but it's it's too expensive and we didn't see the answers unfortunately but I think the way we are now approaching the discussion is quite fruitful. And even though perhaps all the answers we need about how to actually assess an histology-independent drug with regulatory approval based on a basket trial, we don't have those answers. We will don't have, not have those answers today. But if we start to talk about the joint challenges and the joint questions in larger groups, we have at least started... And I think then, as a personal remark, that a lot of it will come down to how we collect further data and how we plan the reassessment, the re-evaluation, the reappraisal, and the repricing, perhaps. Because it seems that in the actual world, a lot of the products will come to use and will be used. And I'm not sure if an HTA evaluation in the clinical setting 
at least not in all countries, in some perhaps, will make the difference from the beginning. But if we can make a difference in the long run, that's also worth a lot. How many of these challenges are being caused strictly just by the evolution of science and that we're getting more and more targeted, we're getting more effective, but in a very, very small population? How much of this is caused by the indications themselves and how much of this is just science is going to continue to lead us down this path? That's also a good question, and I think that was a bit behind the poll question I just (laughs) just referred to, because some of these changes are definitely scientific. And if we don't want to roll science back, we'll have to adjust to them, accept them and adjust to them. But there is certainly also, in some decisions and some considerations, for example, a financial factor that is somehow then based upon an opinion or how a market is working or so you can do that kind of studies but right now in the context you work you don't feel that you can afford it right those are two different different angles and and we must talk and discuss those aspects more and try to isolate and put the different challenges in different buckets, I think. One of the challenges from our perspective and some of the work we've done with some of the HTA agencies, you see a cure come in and you folks in the HTA agency and the payer on the hook today, but yet the savings is going to be five, six years down the road, say in the case of hepatitis C, from the fact we're getting rid of all these one in five risk of liver transplants. So it's the tail risk where the savings are, but the fact is there's no way for you to annuitize that or get that budget sorted out now when this is going to be something in somebody else's budget politically that you can't touch five, six years down the road. Politically, how can we do that internally? How can you manage those sort of free riding conflicts that are ultimately political problems? How do we deal with that? Typically, politicians deal with political problems, <laughs> don't they? Uh, but think, increasingly, think, but increasingly, think, yeah. you as you guys in the health yeah. economic side are being asked to be politicians in these cases. That's the problem. Mm. Or they're punting. It's sort of punting to you mm. guys. You're ending up having to play the front role on this, where maybe yeah. you shouldn't be. Um, um, I'm not sure I, I, I'd, I'll agree to that, but, okay. but of course, I mean, the case with hepatitis C was a very interesting case to learn from. I mean, it was an alarm bell sure. for a lot of systems that we must start to work in a different way. And then I still don't think that the analogy will be easy to draw because hepatitis C was a very special case. And I guess that the challenge is that everything that we see will probably be another special case, a very different case, (laughs) a very special case. So, but of course, it became an alarm bell for a lot of us to to start to think about how we do things and how we interact with upstream, downstream stakeholders that we are being, whether we like it or not, being increasingly depending on. Sure more and more and i think that was the theme at least from the panels i attended yesterday we will be more and more depending on each other's in the chain from innovation and idea to patient access and follow-up 
an evidence generation. So, so patient access isn't the end point, but that's only the starting point for the next cycle, so to say. Last year, the Commission proposed to revise the Regulation on Health Technology Assessment, Directive 21124EU, which I'm sure we all know by heart. Where are we in the context of UNETA of trying to unite these processes? What are the challenges, and how do you think it's going to progress in the next three to five years? Once again, we have to wait and see for the political decisions around this uh, process right now. The situation is that, for example, in UNETA, most of the partners are either directly instructed by the government or indirectly. And since it's the government's representatives, other people are now deliberating the final wording of, of, of this proposal. It gets very sensitive for UNETA. I'm coming back to that we are a technical network, though we must say something. And I have taken upon me to give three messages around the proposal and the process that's taking part right now. I heartily believe in a European HTA collaboration. I wouldn't be here otherwise. So I want to hear also the politicians kind of embrace the idea of us working together to say that in general it is a good thing that we support. They don't have to agree on all details to say that, but I, I want to hear more of them say that. Actually, so You just want more moral support saying, yeah, we need to move in this direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. And, and, and yeah, we need to move in any direction. And then in which direction, that's up to them. How much of this do you think is just the political, any sort of support right now for Europe is seen as difficult because of the populism right now? I mean, it's the third rail. You know, how much I, of it I is that? I don't necessarily think it's linked to that. No, no. But I, I'd like to hear them say that this is, and we do from some of them, but I'd like to hear that more clearly because that would encourage us. Then I want them to embrace the experiences we have gained. We've been working with UNETA since 2006 in different shapes and different forms, but we have gained a lot of ground and learned a lot of things during those 13, 14, soon to be 15 years. Of course, I don't want them to pour that out uh, into the drains. So keep the knowledge, keep the experience and what's good from the UNETA experience. And the third thing is, I'm making a London analogy there, right. mind the gap. <laughs> uh, we all know it's going to be a gap in time and in process, in, in methods and so on. And we need the support to make that as small as possible. And that is also then a, a prerequisite for the previous point to try to reuse and, and um, learn from each other. Yeah. And also from the EU UNETA history. The European Commission is currently engaged in a review of the orphan legislation. Do you think the legislation has been a success from the perspective of the HTA? Stimulating questions here and quite difficult to answer uh, with a yes or no. And I'm glad I'm not a politician so I can expand a bit. One of the main aims when introducing this legislation was to get more orphan drugs on the market. And that has been a success. Certainly from, I think, a patient yeah. access So from a patient... Well... Yeah, patient, not necessarily access, from correct. From a patient perspective... The, the regulation was passed after also an equally political process, as we talked about the, the process about commission proposal. We obviously, they weren't clear enough 
about what is really meant to make more orphan drugs. Is it said available in English? I, I, I wouldn't know the Swedish term, but available. And does that mean, does that really include reimbursed access? Okay. Or does it mean something else? How far do you read the regulation? So what you're saying is, does that mean just to spur innovation in the sector? Or does it mean pill on tongue, basically, is what you're saying? How far does that go? I wasn't around at that time, but to my knowledge, that proposal or that legislation didn't have a very large economic or financial consequence analysis behind it. And even if it had, it's obvious that that is the point that's still missing. So if the HDAs were better off, I don't know if that is the, the most... I mean, it wasn't written to satisfy the needs of HTA, it was written to satisfy the needs of the patients. But patients are depending on society, on payers, that means on taxpayers and citizens that are might also be patients today, but might also be future patients. So, so in this whole sustainability, affordability system, obviously there were a couple of issues that you didn't talk or think enough about because when we now see uh, this uh, legislation in action we realize that it's written very clear and it's not difficult to understand that we shall as a society provide enlightenment in the regulatory process but it's very difficult to see where it's written black and white that we shall also improve the reimbursed access, the payments, the the social systems spending, and especially it's not said to which amount. So if it is a success, yes, but if it's going to be a sustainable success, we need to pay attention also to that dimension. Taking off your Unetta hat and putting on your TLV hat, do you think it's currently unsustainable from your perspective in Sweden? TLV is not the payer, but we are making reimbursement decisions. I don't think it's fair to say that the system is unbearable today, but a lot of people see and hear the alarm bells and the warning signs around, especially as you already pointed out, we might going into a future where almost every <laughs> everything could be yeah. could be a potential rare disease or orphan drug and i know i've been to workshops and, and sessions here as well where any kind of discussion comes up is the rare disease definition the valid one are we accepting two large patients groups in the definition of rare diseases would that solve the problem or do we actually need to talk more about applying health economics and ICERs and potentially on national level, implicit or explicit threshold levels also for orphan drugs, which are the tools that the payers and the systems will have to handle this. And in the middle, coming back to your first question, in the middle is the HTA, the very spread out HTA community, right. where some have said, we don't handle orphan drugs because that's a special legislation. Some say we do exactly as we do with everything else and some say we do what we normally do would we take a number of special measures and the special measures must include by definition 
low number of data points because right. because but of your by patient. definition yeah. exactly yes but in then our mind most of our minds not the by definition very high cost right but we have seen a system where we have anchored all the costs prices for orphan drugs in the other orphan drugs so almost all of them do come to a very very high cost and when you go into a meeting with different stakeholders everyone on the payer or payer-like HDA site will come down and come back to the high prices. That is not really discussed regularly among the other partners like industry, like patients, like prescribers. Well, I think it's discussed in industry, uh, certainly, and I think it's discussed by patients as well. I think one of the big differences we see in the legislation internationally is that in Europe, the orphan drug designation can go away and does go away after a while when you hit the end of the IP life, whereas in the US it stays in perpetuity in an orphan drug. So these disequilibria, I think, are causing some tensions. Would you recommend any changes to the legislation right now? If I'm going to do a combined judgment based on what I hear in different discussions from payers, especially, but from all stakeholders, I definitely think that nuanced discussion is needed. One aspect that we need to discuss, and I mean, we can talk about patient size and if it's reasonable to pay, to say, to pay more just because it's a rare disease. I mean, if we take into account the life expectancy, the burden of disease, the quality of life, and find a common disease that is is equal on, on those measures, is it reasonable to pay more just because a few a low number of others have the same problems? If, you know, you have equal <laughs> disabilities in another larger group, that's one thing we need to discuss. But we also need to discuss the situation where we have two orphan drugs for equally rare, equally disabling diseases, but where one drug gives almost a cure and the other drug gives a very small absolute benefit size. But it's the only treatment effect you can get because there's nothing else on the market. In those two cases where the factor of magnitude of effect is what's changing them, I think by experience we see that the price is almost the same. So the disease burden quotient from your perspective for more effective therapies or less effective therapies would be one way to get around this, do you think, or should it be incorporated in? I don't have the solution, but I see the problem. Sure. And, and, and payers then realize that for this first investment that was kind of at our limit, what we could accept, but only barely, we realize that that patient group is then covered for. <laughs> right. And we can see all the long-term savings that you, you were pointing at for future uh, disease burden and so on. But for the other one, it was only the first small step. As soon as someone else comes up with a new innovation or a new combination therapy, we will have to add a lot of treatment in, in that group because the effect size wasn't the one we wanted or expected. It was just the first. That the came first. In. And I think that also causes worries for the future. But this is one of the inherent problems of the ICER quality methodology, because you're looking at something that may be debilitating and devastating, but if you get there first, and then you can rack up 20, 30 years of quality, boom, you get a huge, large number, which is why we, at our firm, we don't like using quality. We much prefer, you know, marginal cost assessment and incremental benefit of something. It's easier to make a difficult decision in these matters if you have an ICER, but no one can expect to make a decision only based on an ICER. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, the answer is not a decision rule in a lot of systems, and it's definitely not the decision rule by us. It's a combined judgment, uh, and I'm back to the Swedish system now, where sure. the ICER cost will be one of the components going in. And it is rich because it's transferable, and it should, when it's done properly, include both effect size and patient need in terms of quality of life changes and, and life expectancy. So, so it should be very rich in terms of information, but it cannot carry the decision alone. And only very few people expect it to do. So I see where you're coming from, but I would still argue that a difficult decision is better off with an ICER to inform it, but not to decide it. So one final question for you, Nicholas. What do you see as the structure of UNETA and HTA in Europe in five years? I think starting from the bottom, and if the politicians, if the commission and the member states do as I wish, they say, <laughs> they say joint work on HTA in HTA is something positive. Somehow we must go forth with this. Then the building blocks they will have at hand, meaning the skilled people, the templates, the models, so the bricks, so to say. The bricks and mortar, the storefront. <laughs> yeah, are, are very much within the UNETA family already. Which kind of building they want to build with those building blocks or bricks, I don't know. Okay. And especially in, in five years, it's kind of difficult to see, but I'm sure they want to build something. And they have to come back to us to build that because no one else would be able to do it. Definitely not in five years, probably not in a 10 year period because it's quite long learning process to go into HTA. So there will be a place for us, I'm totally convinced, and there will be a duty for us. But how that place looks and what that duty will include and exclude is not for me to say. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.